Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. Hey, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. And for those joining us online, from wherever you happen to be in the world today, we're glad that you're with us. And I just want to add my uh, gratitude to you from last weekend and the response to Send the Youth. And uh, there was enough response that we actually had to find more leaders to go. And uh, I just want to clear up something because, uh, you know, stories get told. And so, you know, you see Shalina up here. Sometimes she doesn't know where this is going yet. You know, you see Shalina up here leading as our worship pastor, and she's sweet and she's kind. But she went up this weekend uh, to help with the youth. And word coming back is that she was destroying the children in games and being like the champion of all things. And so don't get fooled by this like sweet persona up here. If you ever play games with her, according to my 16-year-old son, she will finish you in a game. So, you know, we're just transparent and honest in this church. Uh, so glad that they're there and I'll be heading up to pick up my, uh, my probably over-sugared, over-tired son. Uh, but so good that we get to send our youth into these moments where they... I think come back with these moments where they've encountered Christ in particular and unique and powerful ways. And as they've been experiencing that this weekend uh, with leaders in the, in the youth, my prayer is that we'd experience that here. That we can come with expectation this morning that we are going to encounter God in a way that actually transforms the decisions we're making and makes us conduits of God's grace to the world. And that's what we're continuing in in our series as a video said, called Empowered, Our Journey Through the Book of Acts. And this weekend, we get to talk about empowered glory. And it's a story about a man in the church in the book of Acts named Stephen. And I'm going to read to us out of Acts chapter 6 and part of chapter 7 and part of chapter 8, an unfolding story as the church is moving with power within their time and place. And then Luke, a person inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing down this account. So it's a, a longer reading of Scripture today. And this is one of those sermons I'm going to ask you to get your brains on for. I know it's early, but wherever you are, there's some teaching that has to happen today for us to understand what's there. And you're such an intelligent group. I love hanging out with you. You always make me feel smarter. So we've got to put our brains on today because I think God wants to say some things to our thinking and then to our hearts and the vision that he has for us as people of Jesus. So let me read this text for us, coming out of Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, which was the temple, and against the law. That's what they're referring to in Moses. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? Which 
launches Stephen into this massively long sermon. So let's pick it up at the end, uh, chapter 7, verse 51, where this is good preaching, isn't it? Stephen says to the crowd gathered, you stiff-necked people, uh, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, and I'll explain that in a moment. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. He wasn't trying to make friends that day. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Hang on to that. Saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, whose name will come up again in the coming weeks of this series. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I wonder where you heard that prayer. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Beginning of chapter 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Church, this is the word of the Lord. So the question is, what gave these first Christians, like Stephen, the power and perseverance they had? When you think of the opposition he was up against, well, I think one secret was how they faced and handled suffering. It became a testimony of the church throughout the Roman Empire for the next couple hundred years that those who were in Jesus, they just handled suffering differently. And I think one of the characteristics of a spirit-empowered community, a community that is indwelt and motivated by the Holy Spirit of God, is the supernatural ability to face hardship and accusation and suffering in a way that reflects Christ to those who are watching. And so when we face those dark times, when we face suffering or any degree of trouble because we've chosen to follow Jesus, one of the, one of the best things we can do that really helps is to look at the examples of those who have gone before us, people who have endured through suffering and have followed Jesus right to the end with a joy and a sense of mission that is unquenchable in them. And I think one of the great examples for us is this man named Stephen we've read about, who was the first person in the book of Acts murdered for his faith in Jesus. And we're going to dive back into this text. And I just want us to notice two things. If you're a note taker and some things will be coming up on the screen, I just want to note, have us notice two things out of this text. We're going to look at what Stephen said because it reveals his belief. And then we're going to look at what Stephen saw and see if we can see something too. So when we hear what Stephen said, it's a window into the core of his belief and faith. And when we perceive what Stephen saw, we'll understand the foundation of his confidence. Because wouldn't it be something, as followers of Jesus, to be able to face suffering and hardship and have our faces glow like that of an angel? And absolutely established in the glory and confidence of God? Stephen did, and I think it's a teaching for us today. So first of all, let's look at what Stephen said. I think Stephen was this great preacher. Honestly, when you read the sermon, 
It's deep and complex. It's amazing. But before he was a preacher, Stephen was one of seven people that were put in charge of a food distribution program in the faith community in Jerusalem, that first church, because there was some issues in the church. So nice to know it only happened back then. There was disagreements and stuff in the church, right? Never happens anymore. But some people were feeling left out because of their ethnicity in the church. And the apostles didn't know quite how to handle all these thousands of complaints and preferences. And so they took seven people, one of them Stephen, and said, could you look after this ministry for us of making sure people get fed? So Stephen, along with being this great organizational leader, was also performing signs and miracles and wonders in the name of Jesus and teaching his name. While he's overseeing this food distribution ministry, Stephen is simultaneously talking about his motivation for doing so, that this Jesus really changes everything. And this greatly troubled the religious elite, that a guy like Stephen was out talking to thousands of people while offering food and simultaneously saying, and by the way, the bread of life is Jesus, you should know him. This religious elite were desperately wanting this Jesus movement to die out. Because they'd killed him, they'd put him in a tomb, and now there was this whole outpouring of this message of Jesus that they, the religious elite were not happy with. So a few people who were particularly threatened by Stephen's preaching persuaded some others to accuse Stephen of some serious things, and they had him arrested by the Jewish court. So Stephen at this point was brought before a group called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of 71 religious leaders in Israel at the time. And their whole job was essentially to hear cases about religious law being broken. Because Stephen had been accused of something within the religious system of the day. And so these 71 leaders would sit and they would hear the accusations. And they would have the power within their law to pass sentencing on people who were Jewish. Now, the accusation is found back in chapter 6. It's a really long passage, but the accusation was that Stephen was saying things that because of Jesus Christ, you don't need the temple anymore, and you don't need to obey the law to the full extent of perfection anymore in order to be in relationship with God. So he's basically saying, this temple that you think you absolutely need, and this law that you keep trying to live up to, what if Jesus covers all of it? And that to be in relationship and have peace, to have shalom or the wholeness of relationship with God, you don't need these things you've been counting on anymore. Back at chapter 7, verse 1, you see the high priest ask him, Stephen, are these charges true? Are you really saying that everything we've based our faith and practice on, we no longer need because this person you say is Messiah has changed the whole program? Are you really teaching that because of this Jesus of Nazareth, we don't need our beautiful temple anymore? And we don't need the law in order to be God's people? I mean, Stephen, these are the things that separate us apart from the other nations and make us special. How can you say that Jesus would come and change all that? Are these charges true? And Stephen then responds to this question with an exceptionally long answer. It's the longest sermon or speech or single oration in the whole New Testament. Might even be one of the longest addresses in the whole Bible if you count words. Now the sermon he preached is a really difficult section of text to break down and teach, so I only read one portion of it where he talks about stiff-necked people because I thought it was fun. In verses 51 to 53, which is a summary of the whole sermon he preached. So here's where we get our brains on. 
So I want to give you an overview of this brilliant address that Stephen gives us at his trial before the Sanhedrin because he essentially covers the whole history of Israel and summarizes all of the Hebrew Scriptures in one sermon. And he's answering two questions. What do you believe about the temple and what do you believe about the law? These two things that have separated the Jewish people in their religion from the rest of the world and how special they felt it. He's asked those two questions. What do you say about the temple and what do you say about the law? In an answer to those two questions, he gives three answers. And if you were to read through the whole text, you'd see the first question he's being called to answer is, do you believe that this temple, the building that they were standing in for his trial, do you believe it's obsolete? That we don't need this physical structure anymore in order to relate to God and him to us. So Stephen starts back and he reviews for the religious scholars and teachers their own history for them. And he says, look at Abraham. God was with Abraham, but did Abraham have a temple? No, he didn't. God was with Joseph, but there was no temple. God met Moses in a burning bush and there was no temple. And even when this building was built, Stephen said, God made it clear in places like Isaiah 66 that he doesn't dwell in structures made by human hands. You don't need a temple. So Stephen gets to the end of that and he says, in answer to their question, it's absolutely right. You don't need a building. You don't need the one sacred space in order to encounter God. He is not a deity in a box that you come to visit and then leave and go about your life. You can know God without the temple because Jesus Christ died, rose again, and has ascended, and his Holy Spirit is now being poured out on all people, and the people who follow Jesus and are filled with the Spirit have become a temple everywhere. And so that's Stephen's answer to the first question. Do you really think the temple's obsolete? Yeah, because look around, the temple is people. And that's how we're accessing God. That's how we relate to God, is his Spirit in us. But it's not quite complete, because the temple was designated as the place for sacrifice to be made. So how in the world, they start asking, are we to be in relationship with God and get our sins looked after when there's no temple? Well, the second question is, because it sounded to the accusers that Stephen was saying you no longer had to obey the law, just throw it out. So Stephen again goes back to answer the second question through the history of the people of Israel. He does two recountings of their whole history, one in relation to temple and then one in relation to law. He says to them, listen, <clears throat> Moses gave you the law and you know what you did with it? You didn't obey it. And under Aaron, you didn't obey it. And he quotes the prophet Amos and Amos talked about people not obeying the law. So here's what Stephen is doing. Through the speech, he's saying this, listen, friends, you can't ignore the law. The law of God is perfect. Nothing wrong with God's law. The law of God is good. But if you think that you can be saved and put in right relationship with God by perfect observance and performance of the law, then you've got a problem because you can't. You literally can't obey the law to the letter of it. In fact, you've never obeyed the law, and even the prophets say you never will. If it's about performance, if it's about earning our way to God, you will constantly feel the angst of separation from God because performance will never be enough. So Stephen says to them, hey, if you think I'm against the law, I'm not. But if you think the only way to be saved and live a life in intimacy with God is by perfect obedience, 
then it's a massive problem. So again, Stephen says, no, you don't need the temple. The temple is the people of God. But second, he says, we do need the law. We do need it, but you're not able to obey it. And those are the first two answers to their two questions. But then he answers something that they didn't even ask. What Stephen says next is probably key to this entire passage. You see, when Stephen is giving his sermon, he says, listen, I've noticed a pattern. And the pattern is this. We keep running to a temple, we keep running to a law, and we keep not being able to perform up to standards. And so the pattern is this, that every time God sends a deliverer or a savior to us as people, that savior gets rejected. The savior is persecuted. And so he recounts again, he says, God raised up Joseph to save his family, but he ends up getting sold into slavery in Egypt. Moses was appointed as deliverer, but he was constantly rejected and dishonored and grumbled against. David, anointed king of Israel to deliver the people, and yet the first part of his life was spent on the run as a fugitive, persecuted. And Stephen says, I've noticed a pattern. First, not only do we no longer need the temple to meet God, and not only is another pattern in our history that we can't obey the law, but I also see that whenever God sends us a Savior, that Savior ends up suffering. That that Savior gets rejected. That that Savior ends up being the one we persecute. And then he brings it all together, Stephen does in this great sermon, verses 51 and 53. And 52 says, uh, you need a new heart, he says. You're looking for external answers and resolutions to everything by a temple and a law and performance. And look at what he says. I'm just going to bring it up again. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. When Stephen said that to the group he was saying it to, the 71 religious leaders, scholars, lawyers of the time, the offense of this statement against them is hard to calculate in our times and in our culture. Because what does uncircumcised mean in this context? Well, it's a Hebrew way of talking about a hardness of heart. Stephen is saying that you're all into these external things like sacrifice and Sabbath and circumcision, but your hearts somehow are still filled with cruelty and fear and pride. So he's saying, with all of these observances that you're doing, if the overflow of your life still looks like anger and cruelty and pride and greed, something has gone wrong. And so you need a change from the inside. You actually need a new heart because all your law-keeping hasn't kept you from being, has kept you from being transformed from the inside. And by the way, he says in verse 53, you're not keeping the law anyway, even though you pretend to, so stop playing games, is basically what he's saying. So what's the solution? It's all sitting in verse 52. This is the verse that brings Stephen's sermon all together. By what he says right here, we get a window into what Stephen believes to the core of his being. And he says, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. So he's saying here, you still with me? We're okay, right? He's saying, this is our big problem. We have this need within us to perform and to obey the law and to live right so that we can be in relationship with God, but none of us can. We cannot meet the requirements of the law that put us in peace with God. We can't ignore the law, but we can't keep it either. So what are we supposed to do? 
If the temple's not the answer and the keeping of the law isn't the answer, what's the answer? And the answer is right there when he says, the righteous one. The answer is, you have a righteous one. It's so interesting that of all the names that Stephen could have called Jesus in his sermon, he calls him the righteous one. This is really important because it's a very rare, very rarely used title for Jesus. Jesus is hardly ever called this. Stephen's doing it on purpose. It's a good name. It's a true name, this righteous one. But why did Stephen pick out that one? Well, what does it mean to be a righteous one? What what does righteous mean? You know, honestly, the best way of saying it is to be right. And that means one who has fulfilled the law. To be righteous means you have fulfilled the law and there is no law that is any more held against you. Which leads to a next question. How do you fulfill a law? Well, there's two ways to fulfill a law. You can obey it perfectly or you pay the penalty when the law is broken. So there's a traffic light just down the road here, Keystone Drive, uh, right out in front of this building. And there's only two ways for you to satisfy the law against going through a red light. There is... First, you stop at the red light. That's one way to fulfill the law, and that is official SPAC policy that we recommend. Stop at red lights, right? It's not in our bylaws, but we're going to officially recommend the best way to fulfill the law of red lights is to stop at the light. You stop at the light, the law has no claim on you. The other way to fulfill the law is if you go through the light, you get fined. I don't know if you've ever gone through the light, not thinking you've gone through the light on my superstore there in Spruce Grove, and something a few weeks later, this lovely encouragement note from our municipal government comes, and, you know, you get fined, and you pay the penalty. Once the penalty is paid, which we also recommend you do, once you pay the penalty, again, the law has no claim on you because it's been fulfilled. And either way, whether you obey the law or you pay the fine, the law has no more claim on you. It's fulfilled. So here's the point. When it comes to the perfect law of God and up the standards of His holiness, we're not able to keep the law. We aren't capable of keeping it perfectly. My sin, my choices, alienates me from fellowship with God. And so Jesus comes in our place and He fulfills the law and He does it twice. First of all, He came and lived a perfect life. The scriptures say that Jesus was sinless in all of his ways and though tempted, never sinned. Jesus literally lived the life that we're supposed to live. He loved perfectly. No one has ever lived a life like that. He did that and perfectly fulfilled the law. When no one before him was able to do in the power of the Spirit as God walking among us, he fulfilled the law by obeying it and fulfilling it. But then Jesus also went to the cross. You see, every other deliverer sought to save the people in spite of their suffering and rejection. But Jesus Christ saves us through his suffering and rejection. It's through his persecution and through his death. When Jesus was killed, he paid the penalty for our sin. He fulfilled it by keeping it and he fulfilled it by paying the fine that was levied against us because of our sin. So that when you and I choose to trust in Jesus, we're trusting in him as our righteous one to fulfill for us what we can never fulfill ourselves. And that through his obedience and the blessing of his life that came through his sacrifice, when that is applied to us, 
all of our sin and brokenness is then absorbed by him. So in this, Jesus is the temple. He's the fulfillment of the law and the one who's now inviting us into wholeness with God, not through our performance, but by a merciful act of grace that says the one thing you need most in your life is intimacy with God. And I offer that to you as a free gift by faith. Because Jesus is the righteous one for you and me. So that's what Stephen said. In the face of extreme suffering, Stephen leans into his belief and into his faith that he's been covered in the righteousness of Christ. And so no matter what issue or problem or suffering that Stephen has to face, he has come to know that his biggest problem has already been revealed. And the deep darkness has already been defeated. There is a peace and tranquility of spirit that comes with this, with knowing that your biggest, deepest problems of sin and death already have been defeated in Christ. And that's what Stephen said. He says, this is what I believe. So what is it that he saw? Here's what he saw. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, when they heard what Stephen believed about the temple and the law and the righteous one, and that it is now through Christ that intimacy with God can be established, When they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now what is he seeing? He has just spoken of Jesus as his righteous one, the one who covers him, the one who has established him in love. What's he seeing? First, the right hand of God is the throne of heaven. It's the place of authority. But secondly, it's also the courtroom of heaven. He is seeing the throne and the courtroom of heaven. It's one place. Because in this vision, that place represents all authority and all justice in the universe. This is where it all comes together. And Stephen looks and he sees. What Stephen saw through the Holy Spirit in reality is what he'd just been talking about in principle. And what is that? It's that when you believe and trust in Jesus Christ and by faith receive his grace, he becomes your righteousness and you see your righteous one. And this is so great. Friends, we need to see this, okay? The text says that Stephen saw Jesus standing, right? It says that right in the text, at the right hand of God. In every other place in Scripture, when it it talks about Jesus ascending to heaven, right? Matt talked about this. It says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father in every other place. And that gets the idea across that the saving work of Jesus is now complete. That what he has done for us, it is finished and we can trust him. But here in this text, Jesus is standing. And if you're standing in a courtroom, what are you doing? You're allowed to stand when you're what? Well, when you're talking or when you're making a case. You stand in the court when you're giving an appeal. And here, Jesus stands. And Stephen sees his righteous one and recognizes his advocate as the one who is standing in his defense in the only courtroom that really matters. Theologian F.F. Bruce says it this way, While Stephen is confessing Christ before men, he sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. It is Christ standing and saying, He's ours. He's with us. So what does all that mean? Well, think about it in these terms. 
Stephen stood absolutely accused and condemned before a human court. He was being lied about. He was being cursed. He was being insulted and literally being assaulted. He was having, not figurative, literal stones thrown at his face. And from a human perspective, it looked as though Stephen stood alone against the powers of his day, doesn't it? It's him against 71 and a mob and a crowd and there's just Stephen, but it's not how Stephen saw it. He actually ended up looking to a higher court and saw his righteous one standing in his defense and actually declaring him true and free and forgiven because there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. At the moment that Stephen was in an earthly court being condemned, he saw the heavenly court and Jesus standing as his vindicator and his righteous one. And that's why he was able to face people with death in their eyes and not be afraid. It's how he was able to face hardship, to face the suffering, to face the accusations and face the insults. He could face it all and endure it all with a spirit of steadfast grace and irrational love because he believed his righteous one and he saw his righteous one standing in his defense and he saw that everything he had said was absolutely true. Notice Stephen didn't just know this idea about the heavenly court in his head. The reason he was able to face the suffering like he did and endure it like he did was not just because of what he believed, which was so critical, it's also what he saw. It wasn't that he just believed that Jesus was his advocate, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, it all became visibly real to him. And friends, if if we don't just know in our heads, but actually sense in our hearts the wonder of who you are in Christ and what he has done for you, And how you are so deeply loved by the Father to the degree that that doctrine moves from our heads to being embraced by the heart. To that degree will we be able to handle suffering and hardship in the way that Stephen did. What we say and what we believe and then what we see in Christ, this is what establishes us in hope and in peace. Now some of you, friends, I I hear stories weekly of the hardship and difficulty that so many of us are going through. I think of some of the folks online, they send in messages about the difficulties that you're going through. Those are real, absolutely. There is a loneliness and there is a despair in our community, in our world that is palpable. And those things, the things that we face in the external, you ever notice how it starts to assault our identity? Like, what did I do wrong? What's wrong with me? And I simply ask you this. Do you know who your righteous one is? Do you believe him? Have you seen him? I mean, who is the one that is covering you and advocating for you? Who are you trusting in? In the end, whose voice are you going to have influence your perspective on life and faith and everything? Because when Stephen looked, when he looked in that heavenly court, he says he saw the glory of God. Now, there's some church words that we kind of throw around and we all assume, we all know what it means. <laughs> we sing them in songs, we say them in prayer. And one of those words is glory. Do you know what the word glory actually means? You ever thought about it? Like we think maybe brightness. It's not that. Glory means a weight or a significance or the fullness of. So the glory of God is the weightiness. It's the substance of God, the full weightiness, holiness, full expression of God. When Luke writes down 
that Stephen saw the glory of God. You know what he's saying there? When you see glory and you see the weightiness, you're essentially saying the person and character and truth of God is now holding more weight in my life than what anyone else says. To be in the glory of God means that whatever God says, whatever God is doing carries more significance and more weight than whatever I say about myself or what other people say about me. I will lead into the glory of God and I will feel the weightiness of God in my life and what he feels about me and what he thinks about me and who he says I am. Friends, often, you know what? We have so much issues with giving glory to so many voices other than God. We give glory to people in taking on the weight of their accusations or the weight of their opinions. Some of you are walking a really narrow, hard road of faith. And there's all sorts of people around you that don't like you for it. Or they accuse you of things. Or even intentionally misunderstand just to be opposed to you. Some of you have family members where the tension in the relationship is literally that you're choosing to follow Jesus. And they're questioning you in your character. They're questioning you in your sanity. Friends, we're facing those things. You know how you endure with love and kindness and grace? You see the glory of God and say, God, show us your glory. And in seeing your glory, we will count as weightier and more significant what you're saying than what anyone else says. And we will stand on your truth as opposed to other people's perspectives. You know, friends, a spirit-empowered community is marked by people who speak the truth about Jesus. We say what we believe about our righteous one. And then experience the reality of Jesus right in the middle of suffering and hardship. And that's what we're reminded of to do together in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me as the worship team comes up? They're going to lead us in just a moment. But let's pause and consider what the Spirit is saying. As a church, I invite you, whether in the room or joining somewhere else online, just pause and let's be quiet together. We worked through a lot of stuff today, and so here it is, and yet I believe the Holy Spirit has something for each of us particular to pay attention to, to be responsive to. And so we pause and simply ask the question, Jesus, by your spirit as the one who is standing in our defense? What are you saying to us that we need to listen to? Jesus, we confess that in our lives and even recently, um, we've given a lot of glory to a lot of different voices in our lives. We confess that. We give a lot of weight what people say about us. And some of that wounds us, some of that hurts us. But I think you're asking us to stand with resolve in the truth of our identity and who you say we are. That when we speak about our righteous one, when we talk about being covered in the righteousness of Christ, there's a reaction against that, and yet, Jesus, it's the truth we're standing in, that we're set free because you died and rose again and ascended for us. 
And so Jesus, over your church today, I pray that we would have an experience of glory in this time where the significance of you, the, the substance of you, God, your weightiness would carry more weight and more significant than any other voice that we're listening to. And we will hear you about who we are and who you're making us to be, how you're building your church. And so, Father, I pray for a word of assurance to fall upon this congregation, both here and online. We would hear your voice, that we would see you. We would lean into what we know to be true and then see you standing as our righteous one. And be encouraged in this time to see things through by your grace and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.